Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Rounds in White Finance for Property Investors podcast. Um, it gives me great pleasure to welcome a client of Ramsey and White and someone I've known for some time now, uh, Martin Rapley. Uh, Martin's taken his time to join us today and Martin is a property investor, a construction and refurbishment expert and also a trainer in the property space. So um, I wanted to bring Martin on today because uh, a lot of our clients do kind of the buy, refurbishment, refinance model and also kind of conversions. And uh, normally they get quoted a certain figure for their kind of build costs or their refurbishment costs. And this seems to always go over or is mismanaged. Um, and I think you can get massive value from Martin's experience and his kind of methodology of what he applies to his projects. Um, so I wanted to welcome Martin on today and share some of his wisdom with you guys. So thank you for taking time, Martin, uh, for joining me this evening. That's all right. It's really good to be here speaking to you, Joel. Yeah, lovely. Brilliant. Looking forward to this. Thank you, Martin. So Martin, do you want to give, for those who don't know you, uh, do you want to give a bit of background about yourself and kind of your, your business and what you do? Yeah, sure. My background is construction. I left school, worked for building contractors originally as a contractor's quantity surveyor. Uh, then got more involved in the management and estimating because I kind of got to a role as project managing, as, as a project manager for contractors. Um, did that for 20 something years, set up my own business. Um, and in setting my business up, I found that a lot of my clients were property investors um, because I'd come away from big corporate stuff and into smaller local, you know, into smaller things. And I could just see these property investors, you know, to me, they were just, you know, finding big black holes and pouring all their money down it because they didn't have some of the knowledge that I had. And I hadn't realized I'd got this knowledge. I just, it was just things I'd learned over, you know, 20 something years in construction um, and uh, realized that actually at the same time, I was getting a bit fed up running building projects directly and decided that I would become a project manager and specialize in working with property investors. So really get to know what, property investing was all about i we'd actually had our own buy to let flat for years at that point but you know apart from putting a coat of paint around it and fixing the odd little hiccup we hadn't really done anything with it so we then um so we enrolled on simon zucci's mastermind program to really a build up my client base but b learn about being a property investor and yeah and and to me the, the real exciting bit was kind of an element of what you do which is you know creating you're putting together creative deals and structuring finance because yeah you know, i've always loved finance and the numbers side of things so it all kind of just brought everything together so um that kind of led us to doing some training that led us to getting some of our own properties and yeah you know, building our own portfolio better than it than it was allowing that to grow and then led me to i got talked into starting doing some speaking and then someone said well why don't you do some training courses and yeah, property investors really need what, what you're talking about. And that's kind of grown to where we are now, really, where we're yeah, still project managing, still doing cost consultancy work, doing bits and pieces on writing specifications for those yeah, for investors that want to tender things and then still doing training. And I've got online videos and yeah, bits all sorts of bits and pieces going on. Busy, busy. So, uh, yeah, yeah. But a little bit of everything, really, which I suppose is probably not the best way you're supposed to specialize aren't you but yeah but i don't know i think your skills are very transferable from you from your experience especially working in the construction side of things and i think a lot of investors i speak to and um even myself before getting into investments it was kind of like that everyone had that kind of mindset that you save and then invest that money and there's no kind of real business model or strategy there and then you kind of come across come across also all types of hurdles you know working with builders working with estate agents working with surveyors uh working with lenders and it's not as easy as you may think so it is really important that you kind of have the right people in place or get that right experience to to make your investment worthwhile because I see a lot of people invest early on in portfolio cash in, leave money in a deal. They get to like six or seven properties and I think they've come across like people like yourselves or other investors and you know, actually there's another way of doing it and actually generating higher returns and more slicker processes. Yeah. And actually uh, they, they kind of are restructuring their portfolio. 
And I've seen some people actually want to move away from property because of the, the experience they've had with working with builders and contractors and thinking, you know, this isn't actually for them. But I know from working with yourself how you, how rigid your process is and how streamlined it is that actually it makes that side of the business uh, more enjoyable and more efficient. Yeah. Um, which we'll come on to later i mean yeah we'll definitely come on to that later it's really important so let, let's go so you kind of were in construction you want to kind of get into property yourself um why kind of property as an asset class why did you think is it because you were in construction already kind of around property or what do you like about uh, property as a kind of investment vehicle yeah, i i guess yes i i've grown up around property since i left school so and, and looking back now a lot of my clients were you know even 20 years ago were property investors of some type some of them were corporates, but there was a lot of property investors in there. So I think for me, I, I realized long ago that that property was slightly easier for me because I understood and knew how to do the refurbishments. I, I didn't what I didn't realize was quite how much more than a lot of property investors I knew. But it was it was one thing that made it easier for me. Um, so and I guess it was a fairly obvious um, asset that I could build that I, I was already a lot more knowledgeable about. You know, and I'm now I'm much more aware of other assets, but I, you know, I wasn't aware of you know, gold and, and, and you know, silver and bonds and you know, nothing, like, nothing like that really was in my radar at all. Um, so it was obvious to go property and we'd had a flat for years um, yeah, we had some, you know, when Sarah and I bought a house together, we only used my income to get the mortgage. So we had her income kind of spare yeah. that we could put into a flat. And that was, that was always like, well, we've got a second property. If we ever split up, there's kind of two properties in, in the partnership as it were. Yeah, that didn't happen. And so, and, and we wanted to build a portfolio off the back of that, but we refinanced and you know, refurbished our own house instead and bought a new car and things like that, not really realizing that we'd have done far better refinancing because we weren't in that, we weren't in the marketplace to grow a big portfolio back then. We were just like, it seems like a good idea to buy another, another property. So we did. Um, but yeah, I think knowing what I know about refurbishment makes property the obvious investment vehicle for us. Okay. And, and what kind of, business model are you guys following at the moment and what's the kind of strategy you hear a lot about service accommodation hmos buy to let yes. conversions what are you guys focusing on so so primarily um cash flow is from hmos mm -hmm. um but long-term investment is from single let flats now some of those some of the single let flats we've got have come about with some refurbishment attached to them um, and we split titles and what have you but that's our principal aim now we are as you know looking at buying a hotel with respect to making some something from service accommodation although actually the fallback on that is an hmo anyway yeah. um, and that's that's a little bit more for instant cash flow and possibly then to sell on anyway in due course as a going concern um, so it's the cash flow that really interests us in that in the short term. And it was just such a good deal. You know, it was more about it was such a good deal. We've got to make this work. Um, and it's already a hotel. So, of course, going service accommodation means that there's no planning uh, implications. Um, and, and the HMO is, is a fallback if, if that if that doesn't work for us. But really, yeah, a bit. Uh, my, my longer term plan is that the cash flow means that I don't have to do quite as much of the day-to-day -day management of other people's projects. I love doing that, but I'm, so, I'm sometimes doing too much of that. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah, then gets a little bit draining or gets to a point where I'd really like to go on holiday, but I've got some critical work to do. So that's getting difficult. Whereas of course, the other thing is about building up this long-term fortress, which will replace a pension in due course knowing that we've got you know, flats here, there and everywhere that are fairly standard. Um, you know, most of what we've got is you know, on housing benefit, so it's fairly regular income tenants that are not going to churn a great deal. 
So uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a steady yeah portfolio type thing. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. So we'll come back to the hotel because I, I think the audience will be very interested in finding out a bit more about that, like how you source that deal and, and the, if the numbers, if you don't mind sharing, and how that would look. Um, definitely. So what kind of um, what what areas are you investing in at the moment? Then are, are you kind of you hear people say let's invest in kind of forty mile radius from the house. Some people up north. Some people in Wales. You know, it's uh, what's your kind of thoughts on that? <laughs> so so we've always had a view that we had to invest local to us we've tinkered with investing away from our area mm. um, but what we've always found is we're very very reliant on either being in a, in a different area on a regular basis traveling to the north of the country because we're based in kent yeah so uh, or working with sources and we were talking to sources and they'd phone us up and say well we've got this great deal when can you come up and see it and we'd look in the diary and say oh it's not going to fit in next week mm. maybe the week after and it's like this it's isn't going to work so we then decided we had to invest local to us. We were originally about 40 minutes from us in the Medway towns. That got a little bit saturated. So now we're predominantly in Dover, mm. which is about an hour and 10, hour and 15 minutes from us. Um, that's where we're primarily looking. Although all joking aside, we did manage to buy three flats in South Wales, which was totally because we were there and the deal was presented to us. Um, we found someone who could manage the conversion for us and we literally kind of got all our ducks lined up over one you know one weekend that we were in Wales but yeah it works it makes some money but long term if things need doing to it that's going to be harder than us running down to Dover so our focus really at the moment is totally Dover um, which is uh, about an hour and 15 minutes drive from us which is doable most days i could jump in the car first thing in the morning i could be down there at nine o'clock in the morning and still be doing other meetings elsewhere in the county or you know in the southeast later on in the day which is kind of what suits us down on the ground yeah i think personally like being in business and treating property like a business is important to have that easy access um kind of ears to the ground know what's going on um yeah. it just makes it more efficient right um, I mean, I got I was speaking to a client the other day, and they're based um, around London, but invest in Liverpool. Um, but the journey, kind of going up to to get booking viewings, uh, especially with current current like after COVID, the kind of the lockdown situation, they're finding the agents a bit more tight, like they can't do viewings as much, or they're restricted on times when they get into property. So um, they're getting beaten by competition. So it's just difficult to get their kind of portfolio where they want it to get to because they're kind of traveling a lot and the diary management is um is being restricted yeah. by that um i guess as well if you're a bit more local people get to know who you are and what you're about and what you're doing and uh you, you get deals kind of that way as well which is which well, is good well that that's it and running a networking event as we do in kent mm. you know people come to us and they now are starting to know us for don't for, for investing in dover we're now working on our third property in dover mm. so we are starting to become the go-to people for deals in dover which is a good position to be in amazing so okay let's go let's go into um let's go into the the management the project management of of of, of site so you, you've got your portfolio kind of you're buying you're, you're buying the assets long term you're buying for cash flow um you've got a hotel in the pipeline which we're going to talk about but what i really want to get across to the audience is um you know the nitty-gritty of managing refurbishments and kind of what strategies and and that you implement into your business to make it efficient because you know i've done some training with you i've worked with you on your projects and you know i see the spreadsheets i know how you manage it time and money and uh, uh, make it more streamlined I, I just want to kind of give a quick example to the audience so like one of my first buy to lets i um got recommended a builder to do like like a refurbishment and I went and met him at the property and he, you know, just walked around. There's no kind of, we didn't write anything down. It was just kind of verbal. I'm going to do this and a bit of plastering. I'm going to take the wallpaper off there. I'm going to lay some floor in here. And I was like, yeah, brilliant. Sounds like a nice, nice, seems like a nice guy. And he's going to help me, you know, several weeks later, come back and um, half the work hadn't been done. Um, he wanted more money. He said that on the initial meeting, he actually didn't say that he was going to do, you know, certain things, which he did say. And I had like nowhere to go. I couldn't, I couldn't say, well, actually he did. It was just me and him. It was my word against his. And mm. um, ultimately I had to kind of, it was either pay him to do more work or find another builder who might not be able to finish it. So, you know, I just took it as a learning curve, but I thought I'm never going to put myself in that position again. 
And I think that a lot of investors do find themselves that they get excited by the deal, they get the agent, and then they kind of underestimate the um, the working with the builders and the project management yeah. and the refurb. And, and you know, I've even seen people shy away from paying for project managers because they can do it themselves. And then two weeks in, they're going, "What, am I, what was I thinking?" <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. um, do, do you want to kind of share some of your wisdom around that and yeah. some of your tips? Yeah. Uh, what I'll do is I'll share four tips with you because. Yeah. When when I when yeah people like yourself asked me what could I bring, I kind of really thought what what is it that makes some projects more successful than others, and I looked back in my career and what had caused me to have projects that didn't go as well as they should do, um, and even some that probably didn't make as much money as they should have done. And and I kind of boiled it down to four things. So the things I say to property investors to to look out for, number one is you've actually got to understand the figures for your deal before you buy it. Just because there's a property on the market for £100,000 and you can buy it at £95,000 doesn't actually mean that £95,000 is the right price for you if, you, if you've got to spend £30,000 refurbishing it and it's only going to be worth £110,000, for, for instance. That's the extreme. Yeah. So, so, so and, and what I find is that there's a number of property investors in my head have actually bought the wrong property. And so now they're on the back foot or they've bought the right property, but they've paid the wrong price for it. Mm. So they've got to chop prices all the way through. The first chop is they don't want a project manager because they can't afford a project manager. Yeah. Second chop is I can't really afford that really good builder. So I'm going to have to get the cheap builder that, that doesn't really seem to charge VAT and probably wants everything done cash. And then you're immediately onto the back foot because you are chopping money out. You're chopping value out later on. So that's the first thing. Do the right appraisal and understand what you're buying and, and be sure that the numbers are right. And don't just believe what the estate agents tell you because the estate agent wants to sell you the property. They're not working for you. They're working for someone else. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the golden document. And you've kind of alluded to this, Joe, in what your introduction there. Your, the golden document is you must have some kind of specification of work, some kind of schedule that sets out what you want to do to this property. Because after all, first of all, you're the property investor, you're the property owner. So only you know what you want to do to it. A lot of builders don't know anything about property investing. Um, you know, and a lot of builders will paint everything magnolia because that's what they think property investors want. Yeah. They won't necessarily understand HMO regulations and fire alarms and fire doors and things like that. So you need to tell them what you need. Um, and, and just having that document just to you know, build your credibility. If you showed that document to your broker, you know, send that to Joel and Joel sends that on to someone who's you know, potentially going to find finance for you. That just adds to credibility that you know what you're doing and what you're talking about. But of course it also stops further down the line, the builder saying, Oh, I didn't know you wanted to do that. That, you know, we don't remember that from our walk round on that Tuesday afternoon. Yeah, that's you know, it's all written down and clear, and yeah, you know, they've given you a price based on that. And by the way, if you show the same document to three builders, now three builders are pricing the same job, rather than three of them walking around separately and all interpreting the project in their own, you know, in their own way. So that's number two. Num number three is without any doubt, you need a good builder. And believe it or not, there are thousands and thousands of really good builders in this country. Unfortunately, there's a few bad builders, just like there's a few bad, unscrupulous property investors that we, we all know about. There are, unfortunately, a huge amount of poor clients that allow really good builders to fall into traps, perhaps because they've tried to chip them because they haven't got enough money in the first place perhaps because they didn't write a good clear schedule of works. So there's dispute and misunderstanding there. Perhaps they were disorganized in the way they managed the project, but finding good builders is really important. And my big tip here were well, two tips here is first of all, the best builder is not necessarily always the cheapest builder. For me, relationship and rapport with your builders is so much more important. And a lot, a lot of people say to me, how do I find good builders? I tell you how I find good builders. I don't look for good builders. I look for potentially bad builders, potentially builders I can't work with and just, just don't work with them. 
because the ones that are left, the ones that I've been speaking to, the ones that you know, I feel that I can work with, when, when they promise me a price, they return the price on time. When I meet them on site, they turn up on time. Yeah, they've got good communication. When I walk around them, I feel that I could work with them. Then they're the ones that are going to be good. But I'm not looking for them because I'm looking for the builders that didn't turn up on time. The one that forgot to do something. The one that promised his price by, by this afternoon and it hasn't turned up and it still hasn't turned up next Monday afternoon. And I just stopped working with those people. So that's the third one. And the fourth thing is actually is management of the project. Um, and you've got to manage. If you own this building and you are in charge of it, you've got to manage it. And you've still got to manage the builder. The builder might say to you, oh, but I've got a project manager. I don't need managing. But the, believe me, the builder's project manager is looking after his interests. And I say that from a builder's project manager's perspective. That was my previous career. And I would persuade my clients that their interests were at the top of my mind, but genuinely they weren't. My boss's interests were at the top of my mind because if I messed up, I ultimately got sacked yeah. um, or, yeah, or, or it backfired on me. Um, so any, any builder who says they don't need managing is, is wrong. They do need managing and you've got to manage them. It's your project. You've got to be on top of them and you've got to make sure that it's not you causing the delay or, or it causing any delay or disruption so if you've got to buy materials if you need to buy the kitchen that you are delivering that kitchen in good time for them to install if you've got to choose paint colors or tiles or anything like that that you're not disrupting them because these smaller builders you disrupt them let's say that let's say the kitchen's not delivered when the man's there to install it by nine o'clock in the morning he's thinking i'm not going to get earn any money today so he's off to do another job. And then he's now in someone else's house, fitting their kitchen, which is going to take him a week to do. When your kitchen turns up at lunchtime, it doesn't get installed starting at one o'clock in the afternoon. It starts the following week, all because you know, you've not been on top of it. So yeah, management is... That, co that compounds, doesn't it, as well? Like, so the kitchen doesn't go in, but when does the bathroom go in and... That's right. And then the plumber can't come back and fit his in. And now he's doing another job. And, and it all, as you say, it all rolls on. And it is all process. For me, everything is process. Um, and it, which suits me because I love an Excel spreadsheet. I love yeah. a bar chart. I li love a system. Um, and that's very much what I teach. Anyone who comes to te get teaching from me, I don't teach them what size screwdriver they need to do a job. I teach them how to find the right person and manage that process through. Uh, I've seen it, the spreadsheet and it's, it's unbelievable what a difference it made to my projects versus kind of the projects I was working on before, you know, just having, you know, the list of trades, the list of jobs that need doing and then the months or weeks or weeks and months on the project and when they're going to come in and colour coded and the costs and, and it's just a timeline and yeah. it runs things, makes things run so much more smoothly and you can actually communicate more effectively with the, the team or the, the builders on site because like, look, we're having delays here, but we're waiting for materials there. And this is when we anticipate you can get on. And everyone can have a copy of that spreadsheet then. And, um, you know, it's all there in writing. Um, that, that's right. Yeah. And, it, and it's just another tool to ensure that, you know, things will go wrong, but if it goes wrong, we've got a tool to say, well, what's going to be the knock on effect? Yeah. Oh yeah. And then, and then you can make decisions. You know, if the, if the project is going to be delayed because something you want is on a long delivery, which was, of course, was yeah, particularly the case earlier on in the year when there were real shortages, mm. you could look at the outcome. And the outcome might be, well, that's going to be delayed. It's going to delay me two weeks. Okay, well, let's, perhaps we want to put in a different kitchen then. Perhaps we buy a different product. Rather than you know, wait for the kitchen that we thought we were going to buy, we, we change our mind. Now we've got, we've got a tool to be able to manage things, to make a decision in the right way which could be we are, we're happy that we're going to run late, or it could be actually we need to do something different. We need to build it in a different way to, to claw our time back or keep our budget down or whatever that might be the metric. Absolutely. And from a lender's point of view, if you present one of them a uh, spreadsheet and having all that kind of detailed kind of who's going in at what time, the costs involved, then you come across so much more professional. And like an underwriter is going to look at that and go, well, I want to deal with these people versus, you know, something theory on the back of a fag packet right so yeah. okay cool so four i think really good tips there you know know your figures 
you know, so from a lending point of view, what are you buying it for? What do you believe it's going to be worth? How much are you going to spend on the work? How much, how long is it going to take to do the work and what's the end value? Um, Martin said tip two specification. So having one, if you don't have one, if you've got a project you're thinking about doing and have a spec have a specification. If you don't know what that is, then you know, reach out to Martin and he can share his kind of insight into the specifications. Number three, you need a good builder. And I like what you said about what you look for is bad builders. Um, I think, you know, there are some really, really good builders out there. Um, what I do is uh, we, we work kind of a lot with builders who work for other investors. Um, so there's some really good kind of tradesmen and builders who actually their business is just built around investors. So they understand the business models like HMOs, developments, and they understand kind of the specifications that most investors are working to and kind of what's current and what projects uh, or products are being brought to the market at the moment. And then I guess number four is management. So don't underestimate or don't um, just anticipate that your builder is going to manage the project himself, you, themselves, that you're going to have to get, get involved or at least get a project manager in there to manage that. So, so four, I think, simple tips to apply to your business and uh, can make a real difference. Okay, cool. And what would you say is, you know, I mean, every project's different, isn't it? So maybe the cost is different. What would you say is a ballpark that you'd pay a project manager? What would be a ballpark figure for, for a project? Or so for those who don't know or, or, or kind of thinking, you know, I want to do it myself. You know, is it, can it be cost effective? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So can you afford not so, to do that? I guess is the question. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, this is it. So, I mean, you're talking to a project manager here. So, yeah. so far as cost goes, a good place to be thinking is roughly 10% of the build cost. Yeah. Now on okay. a smaller project, it's going to be a little bit higher than that. And on a larger project, it will come down. And in fact, I was looking at a project, um, yeah, a, 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 a project that was well over a million pounds. And my, and my my fee wasn't 10% of that because yeah. of course you start to get economies. But on the, at the smaller end, yeah, 10 to 12% is a good place. I don't personally price as a percentage of the build, mm -hmm. of the build cost, because I, I want to be transparent and put things on as a fixed fee. But what I would then counter that with, and, and let's say we're doing a fairly straightforward little, I, I do quite a lot of house to HMO conversions, often with loft conversions, often with an extension on the back. So 100 and, yeah, 125, 150,000 pounds. Yeah, and, and a lot of the time my fee is 10 to 12,000 pounds depending on where it is and how that works. But I'm pretty certain that at least half of my fee, and it, I mean, this is difficult to say, but I would say on most of my projects, if, if my clients hadn't employed me, it would have cost them at least half of my fee in additional time or money, mm. um, a lot of my a lot of my clients actually realise the benefit of outsourcing. Anyway, they've got other businesses, or they know that they can actually make more money by going to find the next deal, or you know, working to find the finance or whatever than they can actually ever save by managing the projects themselves. But I think a good project manager would have saved at least fifty percent of their fee just by streamlining the process. So it's, it might feel like it's a lot of money, but in reality, you know, you could lose a lot of money. And this is where it all started for me. I was working as a builder originally thinking, God, these guys just don't know what they're doing. They're just pouring money away because they don't understand the process. You know, they're not getting the right people involved at the right time. They're not getting building control involved or, or, or they're, they're, trying, they're trying to avoid appointing an architect. And now we've got scrappy drawings. And, you know, and it was just delaying things further down the line. So I would say, yeah, at least half of your project manager's fee, you're saving if, you, if you're doing it yourself. Yeah, I, no, I agree. I think like, like you made a good point about um, investors running other businesses. You know, I have a couple of businesses and I, I'm hands on them, especially the finance is my core business. And um, we invest in property in the background. But I do. I love I love property as an asset class and um the benefits it has um it's definitely hard work at times but i try not to get involved in the projects because i know where my skill set lies and i'd rather kind of outsource that to someone with experience you know i effectively want the kind of the project manager who kind of treats project management like i treat finance and how i treat my clients like you know 100 percent, their business comes first for me 
Um, and that's and, it. And I'm, I mean, I, prod, I project manage my own schemes and I've got a yeah. team anyway, so it's not me doing everything, but, but I, they all just come into the same melting pot with everything else. So I'm in a slightly different position, but I guess, yeah, I have to come to the likes of you to help me with my finance. Yeah. Because I can't, that's not my skill set. Yeah. And whilst I might be able to fish around, and I see people on Facebook, yeah, saying which, bro, actually, which bank should I ring to get finance? He's like, I'm not doing that. I'm phoning a broker because the broker knows finance. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, and that's it. I see too many property investors not, in fact, one of the things I teach, I, I, I teach them is find the element where you can really add value. You might be really good at finding deals. We'll just go and find deals every day of the week. You yeah. might be really good at negotiating with motivated centers. You might be able to be able to do land you know, assembly where you get multiple plots next to each other. You might be able to do finance. You might be able to do project management. You might be into interior design. Yeah. Find a bit where you can really add value and do that really well and outsource everything else and get good at doing what you can do and what you enjoy doing. Yeah, I think there's two reasons there. Like one, you're probably not going to experience burnout. And so if you kind of, in, if you're doing what you enjoy, you're doing, you're kind of in your flow and working kind of towards kind of what you know and your skills are transferable maybe from one job into another. And um, the other one is momentum. You know, once you get kind of stuck doing things you're not that good at and you're trying to figure it out and learn on the job, you lose momentum and you get kind of complacent and you don't really enjoy it, the process as much and you make mistakes and that costs you. So it is really and it's, key to get the right team in place. Yeah, and I was gonna say, it's very easy to come out of a project having made mistakes, not realizing you've made mistakes. Yeah. And I do see property investors, they've made some mistakes on a very quick and easy refurbishment, got away with it. Mm. The next thing is they're, they're converting a big house into three flats and they're making those same mistakes, but the numbers are that much bigger mm. and the scope for error is that much greater. Um, and so they've just got, and, and unfortunately, I see investors that are then offering their services to other people as project managers that have still got some, you know, some very poor processes in place because they didn't re they've not realized that they've got those poor processes. And I think, unfortunately, with perhaps where the market's heading, where perhaps we might see some you know, values go starting to drop a little bit next year and build prices creep up a little bit next year so the margin in the middle is going to be that much lower i think unfortunately we're going to find some investors catching a cold and unfortunately some of them are going to have their problems because they've got inexperienced project managers in the middle that have kind of for a number of years got away with it whilst the market's been booming values have generally been going upwards so even if you slip up a revaluation is probably going to go up to a certain extent anyway. Um, and I think now we've got the market going the other way, we could stop find a few people you know, mm, getting into a bit of hot water. When we look at investments, we normally look at like your capacity for loss. Um, mm. And I think investors need, should imply the same kind of theory that um, because, you know, loss on time, loss on money, can you afford to make that loss? within your portfolio and how long is it going to take to recuperate that the funds yeah i think people should just try to think like that a little bit when making decisions especially around money it's like okay i i could manage it myself but okay i've never managed a project before what does that mean to me do i have the skill set to do it can i afford not to do it what if things go wrong what position will that put me in what position would that put my portfolio in what position would that put the rest of the project in? What would that put the what position would that put my kind of family and lifestyle and everything else going on? Because the stresses that come with it. So think about capacity for loss and apply that kind of to I guess the methodology of of um appraising your your investments. And that kind of that helps me. Uh, like from a lender's point of view, it's okay, they, they want to lend right, but it's how do we mitigate the risk of losing that yeah. money? Because ultimately we want to lend, but we want to build a good relationship with the borrower, with the investor. Uh, but ultimately get a return on our, on our investment. So how do we mitigate the risk? And that's why, you know, investors will say, uh, you know, I have to answer all these questions and pay for all these hoops with investors. And, you know, I, I agree, sometimes it can be painful, but what the lenders are doing are trying to mitigate that risk so they can get the funds out the door to you, uh, ensuring yeah. that, that that money comes back. Um, but what I want to move on to then, so obviously project managing, 
you, and obviously portfolio landlord working on conversions. What's the biggest problem that you've come across whilst managing a project for yourself or an, another investor? And how have you kind of overcome that? I would say the common biggest problem I've seen when I work with other investors is they actually haven't really got the funds to do the project. Yeah. Now they, they might have some kind of drawdown facility. Yeah. But I, I've got one at the moment. She's got a drawdown facility, but she's decided to spend more than the drawdowns allowed. Okay. So of course that's then dipping into her own funds and then coronavirus comes along and that affects her business. Yeah. So yeah, I think cash flow problems is, is the biggest thing I see. Um, that yeah and everyone builds in a contingency but i think that it's the contingency that gets chopped when the numbers don't quite work i will just put in a five percent contingency and then in the first week you strip out you find you've got you know, dry rot everywhere on the ground floor or something and all of the contingency's gone and then later on there's another thing comes to light so i think i think too it, it's great there's a lot of training courses out there that say oh it's not all no money down you you can do no money down but not when there's a lot of refurbishment. You can do no money down if you've got a fairly vanilla scheme, you've got a really good deal and you can get a good refinance on it. But you start doing lots of refinance, uh, sorry, lots of refurbishment and it's, it's non impossible to do no money down. So you've got to have cash in the bank, which is less of a challenge for, for myself because I've got a business. I've got a business that's generating cash. So, if my property portfolio needs some cash bolted into it, there's cash sitting in my business, there's cash sitting in my own personal account. Whereas I meet mean, a lot of property investors where they're, they're, they haven't got an income. Their income is going to be the property that they're just converting into an HMO. Mm. And they're on a shoestring, they've given up their job and, and they're down to their last, you know, call it 10 grand or less. And it's you know, and 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 they've got too tight, um, and and unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately for me, the common thing is it's my fee that doesn't get paid until the refinance comes through a few months later on. Mm. Um, but they've also been forced to cut the corners. They've also been forced to make, make shortcuts, and ultimately not got the project that they probably should have done. Which in turn probably then means they didn't get the valuation they were expecting because they weren't getting the rental income and it all just becomes a horrible vicious circle. So I think, yeah, you've got to have funds. You've got to have funds sitting in the bank or you've got to have, you know, an investor that can give you a bit more or, or if you work out, you need 50 K to do a job, get 70 K, you know, borrow 70 K to do 50 because you, you can solve so many problems when there's cash in the bank. If there's no cash in the bank, you're forced to cut corners. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think cash flow, they say, you know, cash flow is king. Having actually cash available, readily available is, is key in any project. Um, most lenders we work with put a minimum of a 10% contingency on funding. They, they want to see that built in, so you should build that in anyway. Yeah. Uh, most investors we work with, so most kind of, I'd say, in higher net worth investors have probably six to seven streams of incomes. And that'll be through multiple businesses, uh, portfolio, um, various assets and property being one of them. And that kind of supports them. And they kind of go on this gradual journey of building, building their kind of businesses mm. and portfolio into the right kind of schemes and projects. So cash is definitely key. I'd say to anyone who's kind of considering giving up their job and going into full-time employment, uh, so full-time property investment, uh, just look at, you know, the position you're in now and then also the position you will be in once you go uh, full time, because you may have a pot of money, a pot of set like savings, but from a bank's point of view, if you have no provable income, although you may have 50,000 pound, a hundred thousand pound in a bank to an underwriter at a bank, they could, um, they will see that as well. You've got no provable income and that money could just be, you know, effectively all put on black, you know, at the casino and here today, gone tomorrow. So they rather see a steady income coming in to support kind of any void periods or any kind of um, money or cash flow issues within kind of a refurbishment project. So just double check with your kind of mortgage advisor, financial advisor, what position you will be in from a finance point of view if you do decide to quit uh, and go full time into property. I'm not yeah. saying it can't be done. We've got a number of clients who have done it. 
um, but you just need a plan. You need to put a plan in place, um, especially if you're going to come across any issues on your refurbishments. Um, it's really, really key. Uh, another thing I'd say is most lenders look for a 20% uh, profit on cost. So again, you just got to build that in. I think this comes back to knowing your figures. Um, and you know, these are yeah. straightforward figures to understand. You just reach out to someone at Ramsey and White or kind of like Martin, and we can run through these figures with you if, you, if you're looking at a deal and you want to see if it does stack up. Um, all right, cool. So we, you touched base on kind of the economy and what's happening. Obviously, it's been a bit of a bumpy ride this year. Um, I spoke to, I speak to a few kind of business owners this year and some of them, their stance on, I mean, I know, I know one business owner that owns multiple companies, very successful. And he said to me, Is, if, I, um, if I don't make any money, I'll be happy. That's what he said. If I don't make any money, I'll be happy. So he's just trying not to make a loss this year because he's got so many overhead staffs, multiple kind of businesses yeah. trying to run. And, you know, this kind of, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a tough market out there, right? For, for a lot of businesses, you know, people can't go out like they normally used to be able to and, you know, bars shut in and then the lockdown and, you know, the valuations has impacted a lot of people. So how has it kind of impacted your business? What are you doing to kind of push forward? See, we speak, you know, weekly about the kind of deals you're working on, but um, how do you see see things at the moment, Martin? Yeah, well, so so the initial impact, uh, and uh, um, yeah, interesting. What you, yeah, what your your client was saying that yeah, if if he made no money this year, that would be good. Mm. We, we actually we actually looked at the risks back in March. Yeah, you know, when COVID first struck, we was yeah. like, what are the risks to our business? Yeah. Number one was actually death. We yeah. decided that if we got to the end of the year and no one had died <laughs> in our you know, in our business and our circle, then that was good. Yeah. But we were exactly the same. If we came out of this, um, the first thing was if we came out making no money, that was good. We also knew that we had a cash buffer. So it was like, that's our second fallback. Yeah. We've got, we get out of this with no savings left, but at least we're still out of it. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, uh, where we are at the moment is we haven't had to dip into the savings, but I don't think we're going to be making any money. Um, in fact, we were looking at the figures earlier today, saying kind of what what do we need to get in, um, and what we're missing really is nigh on five months of new business. We've got no real new business between March and August. It's just starting to come back again now. We got some things we were already expecting that eventually got started. Um, and we're just starting to see you know, some new business coming now. What we actually did back in May was we really improved a lot of our online training courses. So we filmed some new training uh, uh, videos. Um, we actually improved our funnel um, and our marketing um, and just looked at that thinking that at least because we've been running some in-room training courses as well. And of course, all of those went by the side. We did manage to run one on Zoom, but we decided we would actually you know, put them out onto, you know, uh, uh, you know, onto the internet so that they're now watchable at home for, by everyone. So a little bit of pivoting the business, a little bit of really just working hard to see where the money was going out and where we could stop it going out and see who were our best clients and who might help us get started the quickest, really? Where had we got the most work in the past? Which of our clients were likely to have churn quicker and really focusing and working with them? But of course, the big thing is with anything with refurbishment is everything takes time. You know, you, you, I, I, speak, I might speak to an investor today saying, Martin, yeah, I'll, I'll employ you to do a project, be a project manager. I've just got to buy the property. You know, and we all know how long that takes. Yeah. 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 So anyone who's talking to me now, I'm thinking I'm not going to earn anything now until Christmas time at best. Yeah. yeah. And and that and that's the whole thing. So we've missed that. We've got that whole kind of the summer where everyone's getting excited through May, June, July, and August buying properties. That didn't really happen. So yeah. So say, we'll we'll be we'll get out of it, but it won't be our. It definitely won't be our best year on paper. Yeah, I mean, and that's the the main thing is you get if you get out of it on the other side, right? And you know, so how how can you learn? How can you adapt? And I think it's a bit fight or flight, right? You know, you can. There's nothing like a, I don't know, a lockdown, a pandemic to kind of get your hair stand up and go, right, what does this mean to my business? Yeah. I need to assess every kind of eventuality here. And you know, you've gone back to death. As long as we survive, and um, 
you know, it's, it's business is serious. You need to treat it serious and no one anticipates it happening. Um, but, you know, the beauty for us is that people still need somewhere to live. You know, there still seems to be a demand for people to move, downsize, relocate, uh, upsize, separation. Um, people still want to build their businesses. Those that took the risk and went straight into full-time property and, you know, they still want to move forward. And businesses is kind of, you know, an ever kind of evolving thing where there's different strategies and models, you know, from rent to rent to service accommodation, HMOs, uh, you know, social housing, you know, like for example, social housing before lockdown, not many lenders were lending. You know, we, we've seen a few lenders and we positioned a lot of clients with these certain lenders. Um, but now through lockdown, we're getting reports that the social housing kind of uh, portfolios outperformed a number of the other things. So, yeah. And then the other properties because the, the rent was kind of guaranteed and paid and, you know, the, so now we're seeing more lenders kind of get a bit of, a, of an appetite or starting to look closer at that was before it was a bit more of a reputational risk to the bank. Mm. Um, yeah, interesting. So it's about just kind of taking the time and going, right, how can we move, move forward? I think we'll say from a lending point of view, there's lending still available. Loan to value still seem to be um, at decent levels and, and rates are very competitive still. Um, so that's good from a funding point of view. Um, so I guess, I mean, obviously the, the stamp duty has, we've seen the, the kind of the holiday stamp duty and we've also seen, I mean, there's some stuff in the news, Boris the other day was talking about 95% first time buyer mortgages. Who knows how that'll look? Will it be kind of replacing the help to buy? Uh, but there's still a lot of activity. And I guess what we've learned is we can do things remotely. Um, mm. I guess, I guess for yourselves, it's just highlighting the importance. If you are going to manage a project, um, especially if you're managing from afar, having someone like yourself in their kind of team can hopefully uh, improve that whole journey for them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk about then. I won't keep you too much longer, Martin, cause I think you shared loads with the audience, which is, really appreciated so thank you um let's talk about your should we talk about your current project the hotel that you you know how did you find yeah. that do you want to tell us a bit more about it and kind of what it's going to be etc yeah so so the thing with the hotel kind of goes back to what i was saying earlier on work out what you're good at and, and what i what myself and my wife had worked out a good few years ago is we are not the best at finding deals or we can see deals but we're not the best at converting them into a deal yeah so, so a lot of what we've bought, I mean, we've had some good deals, but they come through really slowly. And we've done, we, we've met a guy local to us who was really good at finding deals, but he just couldn't get his head around the figures at all. Yeah. And he couldn't, he couldn't walk into a property. He could see it was big enough to be something, but he couldn't work out, he couldn't visualize what it was going to look like. So we'd looked at a number of things with him and we'd kind of helped him out and he'd helped us out. And then he rang me up one day and he said, I've got this, this hotel. He said, I just need someone to get their head around it with me. Can we meet down there? And we actually went, we, don't, we were only just out of lockdown. And uh, we met at this hotel, which coincidentally, I'd looked at about five years ago. Hmm. Um, and the, the vendor had not sold it. It wasn't motivated back then. And we couldn't do a deal. Um, and and the tur so, so what ended up happening was, my, th th this, this investor that we'd met had, had the trust of the owner. So I was able to table various ways that we could do a deal. And the principal thing that this guy had got, he'd got a hotel that he'd been, he'd basically got on a rent to rent with a hotel operator that had pulled the plug as soon as COVID struck. Whereas he had the idea of actually this summer, buying himself a yacht and going off sailing off around the world based on the income yeah. from actually this hotel and another hotel he had which we couldn't help him with and some other property so his whole property empire just crumbled in march and he and he had some really poor finance on the hotel he had bridging finance on it which was fine if it was fully occupied and on this rent to rent deal he'd got but was crippling him as soon as the rent to rent deal was pulled. So, so we found him in a very, very motivated state. Um, 
and, and were able to put together a deal with him. And, and what makes the deal more exciting for him primarily is that there is scope to build on the rear of the site. It's a really big site. It, the garden is way, way bigger than a hotel would ever need. Um, you know, it's about 100 metres long or probably even more than that. You can't really get to the back of it. It's a bit overgrown. Um, so, so he's got this bit of land at the back, which he wants to go off around the world, but it can be developed. He saw that we had the time and the skills to help him develop it or perhaps just help him get the plan in and sell it on or whatever. But we, we also came up with a plan that we could take the hotel from him not to run as a hotel, but to run as boutique. We're well, not real boutique, but not top of the range, but good quality service accommodation. Mm. All self check-in, all electronic. Um, and because this is in Dover, we're not so much pitching for, towards tourists. The tourists don't generally stay in Dover. They're, they're, they're passing through and getting on a boat and, and going to France. But a lot of the, the staff that are working in the docks in the cruise liner ports and those businesses. A lot of them are doing odd shifts. They're coming, they're bringing a boat in at, at, at you know, 10 o'clock at night. They know they're back on shift at 8.30 in the morning. So they're looking for accommodation in the town that is good quality overnight, self-check-in, nice little rooms, TVs, fridges, places to make, you know, travel lodge type quality, but not tra quite travel lodge type price. So that was kind of how we saw it. And, and how we put it to the owner was, look, we will work with you and take a profit share on the development of the back whilst you're, dri whilst you're driving around the world on your yacht. We'll help you develop that bit. Um, and as a result, you'll get more from this plot than you would ever get by selling it on the open market as what is effectively an empty hotel, which of course is what's played out in our valuation. We kind of know the value of the plot, but of course it's an empty, it's an empty hotel. And what we've realized is it's, it's, it's worth more as bricks and mortar than it is as an empty hotel. But you know, that it is where it is. And yeah, we can still make it work. We can turn it around and you know, develop it and add some value. And it's not a massive development, it just needs I think it needs nine, nine or ten en suites, a coat of paint, new carpet, fresh new furniture. You know, it's been a hotel. It's not dreadful condition, mm. but it was one of those hotels where it was shared bathrooms, and so we can come away from that. We can get an eight, we can get an en suite into every room, and then, as I say, we could have it as a backstop as an HMO if the hotel business doesn't work. But I can't see any reason why it won't. And, and do, would you like to share some of the numbers, kind of like what? Um... What did you pick it up for? What yeah. Would, what would, what so, would it meant for once it's fully occupied? So, so the deal is we're picking it up for, for £300,000. Mm -hmm. We've got a budget of £150,000 to, to refurbish it. Yeah. Um, if, if we, whether we refurb it as a service accommodation or HMO, mm -hmm. we're pretty confident that it, as an HMO, it would value up at 700000 Pretty confident that as an, an H, uh, sorry, as service accommodation, we could get some kind of refinance, and I know this is where we're talking to your guys, Joel, somewhere in that vicinity. But the other thing is we've got, we're talking to a service accommodation rent-to-rent -rent provider, and based on their fairly conservative indication as to what they think they can give us as a rent-to-rent -rent at this stage, we believe that after we've got two years of trading accounts, the business at that point is going to be worth somewhere in the region of a million pounds. And then added to the whole thing in here is we've still got a share of any profit uplift in this bit of land at the back, which we're going to work with the current owner. And the deal we've got with him is he gets the first 250,000 pounds of profit from that deal at the back. And then anything above that, we go 50, 50, where there's actually a similar plot on the market at the moment, about 100 yards up the road with planning permission that's on the market for 250,000 pounds it's not sold or anything but it, it shows that you know it's it's possible for us to get more and and this is an eight-year deal we've got with the owner so we don't have to do anything with it for eight years so as long as it's worth more than yeah all and all of that is just bonus we haven't even factored any of that into our into our pro, pro plans at all 
our plans are really build up the business or refurbish the property, build up the business, and then sell, sell to exit the business or refinance. Um, yeah, effectively to get all of our money back out of the deal. Yeah, I think so. Th this goes back to what you were saying at the start of the podcast, where uh, you enjoy the kind of creative strategies. And this is one of them where you can take an asset and really kind of maximize the value off the back yeah. of it. And what you're talking about there with the, the land at the back is basically called an overage where the vendor of the site is, uh, you know, where they see there's potential gain. You're stepping in saying, well, you're going to develop it. You're going to take control of that and manage it. So you won't have to worry about it. Like in this scenario, he'll be on a, on a yacht somewhere enjoying himself. And, uh, but he will take a, a profit share off the back of it. And like you said, over eight years, which is great. So they, they are out there, guys. Um, and in terms of the funding, I mean, what you, for a deal like this, you can get funds towards the purchase, normally up to around 70%. Um, and then there's lenders that will lend up to 100% of the work costs, as long as the total borrowing is no more than kind of 70% of the gross development value. And there's a, there's a few options here. So um, the, uh, at the moment, obviously being a hotel, commercial, ideally want to convert and keep it onto SA. Um, and once we've got kind of a 12 months trade in history, then the lenders can work off the uh, commercial kind of yield based valuation or the, the projected income off the occupancy rate. Um, and another option is to gain planning and, and get the HMO. So it's that residential element, uh, which opens up more doors. So um, really robust kind of strategy with some exits there and also the additional income it can produce from the land from the back so and you know this obviously this guy's a business owner he wants to wind things down who knows what who knows who knows what other opportunities it may come out of the back of that relationship from from his contacts etc um so so nice deal um how did you find you know you know managing that relationship once you've got it you know is it just kind of communicating phone calls or one-to-ones how, how have you found that process so, so this is the real thing because it's not me doing i'm not dealing with the owner i've yeah. got this my business partner now so we've now created a, uh, an spv together yeah so i explain everything to the my business partner what i'm thinking what the risks are what the pros are what the cons are and then i talk to him about how we might present the salient parts mm. to the vendor um and, and in fact we've had a little bit of a to and fro over the last couple of weeks just agreeing you know which bit of land the overage is going to relate to um and, and you know and we've and, and the the owner of the property is getting a little bit he, he's got a little bit too intense about things he doesn't really know about and so we've had to just unwind it and help him now that's not my skill my skill is understanding the numbers talking to my business partner his skill is actually putting that that scenario put in over the yeah how we're working together and effectively what we needed to do was remind the vendor that actually we're doing this as a partnership that actually the only reason we want to know where this line is in the garden is for the lenders and the over the overage and the lenders which yeah. we're all happy with that line yeah. we don't need to worry about whether you know he, he wants us to sign to say that we'll give him a party wall wall to do his work and it's like we don't need to do that. We're going to all do it together anyway. Mm -hmm. And by the way, party walls, all statutory stuff. I would be a little bit of a bull in a china shop having that conversation with a, an owner. My partner, on the other hand, would have made him a cup of tea and sat down beside him and, and taken him step by step through. And this was what I was saying earlier on. Be, work out where you really add value to the whole process and just do that. Because I worked out that actually my best clients are the people that are really good at finding deals. The best people for me to work with are good at finding deals. I can do the next bit. I need people that you know, aren't so good at managing refurbishments or don't have the time to manage refurbishments. But you know, if they can keep finding deals, we're, we're a great team. And that's exactly how, what's happened with this hotel. Yeah, I think the, just the communication between yourself and your business partner and then how it's presented back to the vendor is kind of key in this in this deal yeah um, absolutely but i don't have to do that little bit of tea making and yeah. social work stuff because that's not me that's social not what work. i'm good at yeah you know, let 
Yeah, give me a darkened room and some figures, and I'll, I'll, I'll run the numbers every day of the week. But my business partner can't understand Excel. So yeah. I have to take the salient bits out of the Excel document that I've got. Yeah, when I'm talking to him and sharing a screen with him, I've just got a few figures highlighted, just the figures he needs. And then I can say, and if I change this figure, if you agree that you're going to buy it for £10,000 more, look what it does down here to this figure. Yeah. That's all he needs, just the headlines. doesn't need the, the, the minutiae about it. I think that's important, actually, that you, that you both do have opposing kind of skill sets because if you were both kind of spreadsheet-minded and, you know, he, he, more your way or more, or more his way, then actually that deal probably wouldn't get done because, you know, it, you, yeah. you, you're more valuable as a team and having them different skill sets and bring them together. And I think that's a lot it. of our clients do work with other business owners or look to do kind of joint ventures. And I think they do it off people like they're just friends with or, you know, people they've had a drink with in the pub and it's kind of like, look, let's do property together. But I actually haven't really deep dived into what they bring to the table and nine times out of yeah. 10 um, JVs fail. And actually where there's been money put in the, into the deal, it kind of gets a bit sour and um, just something people should be aware of before kind of jumping yeah. into head because it sounds like a good idea, but actually this is business and very serious, you know, yeah. issues happen. And we've already talked about what the differences are, what we, dif what we bring that are different. And in fact, Sarah, my wife, she's the one who does a lot more of the admin side of things. So, so we've got, yeah, we've kind of got a three-legged stool now. Someone who can bring the deals, someone who can manage the deals, and someone who can sweep up all of the admin side of things is now. And in fact, we've looked at several other since, and there's other, other opportunities bubbling around at the moment. They're not quite over the line yet. But we've now started to replicate that same thing. We've now worked together once um, and we're now starting to learn other things. Um, and interestingly, we've gone back through our leads that we couldn't convert and given them to my partner. And he's pulled out some of his things where he couldn't really work out a deal and asked me to look at them a little bit more creatively. And yeah. fingers crossed, some other things will come from it. Oh, I love that. I love that because it's always there's always a deal to be done, but it's just yeah. how does it get done? You know, what do yeah. they need to make it happen, and how do you explore that? So, and I love that. That's right. Okay, yeah. Martin. I think well, we've covered loads, haven't we? So, I really kind of appreciate your time. I uh, just want to kind of highlight again for the listeners some of the tips that Martin brought up today. Um, making sure you know your figures. You know, making sure that you have a specification. Um, make sure you have a good builder and uh, make sure that the project's managed or you manage that builder as well so there's just a couple of tips there that martin shared with us do you, do you have anything else to share before we sign off this evening martin i i think i think the thing about property investing is you've got to in property investing you are going to do refurbishment somewhere along the way hmm. um so don't overlook the importance of refurbishment but i think also i would just say don't feel that you have to do huge deals particularly if you haven't got the experience or ever i'm not even though i can manage multi-million pound projects i'm not actually buying any of those for myself because that the risk is just too great for me i'll work with clients that want to take more risk um but yeah i see a lot of property investors who feel they have to start at a million pounds and they need to convert or they need to build 10 houses don't do that if, if you haven't got the skill if you haven't got the knowledge if you haven't got the team around you just go in very slowly start slowly start small grow 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 um I think, yeah there's too many people out there that are, are told oh just go on and do it and you know it'll all come good i worked with some clients for a short while two and a half years ago their whole scheme went horribly horribly wrong number of reasons all outside of my control in the end they ended up losing seven hundred thousand pounds really because they 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 didn't take my advice early on they fiddled the figures and then they hadn't got any cash they ended up losing their house over it you know and that's what can go wrong and ultimately if i look back what did they do wrong they should have just taken a house and converted it into two flats not bought a london commercial building and tried to convert it into 10 flats when it only had planning for eight flats and you know it was just too big for them in one go they, they might have got there in a few years time so uh, yeah my final tip is just yeah don't do anything that's too big for you thank you Martin. i mean you, you can't be experienced right 
and uh, you said about fudging the figures, guys, please don't ever do that. Oh, Just be, you, yeah. you're only lying to yourself and um, yeah. you're only going to be disappointed when that project ends and you look at your bank oh. balance and think, oh my gosh, I'm in the, you know, I'm in the red here. Yeah. Um, and that's not a good place to be. Right, Martin, thank you so much for coming on. How can people find you if they want to reach out? So uh, easiest thing, have a look on my website. If you go to refurbishmentmasterclass.co.uk, um, at the top of that is a button that says book a call. That's the easiest way of getting hold of me. Um, that'll take you straight through to my diary and uh, we'll get a call in the diary, free call, and we can talk about you know, how I might be to help you, how we can work together. Or even if you've got a little 10, 15 minute question, I'll answer the whole question on the call. Um, so uh, I don't give out phone numbers because I can't rely on being available when, when you phone. Whereas if, if you've booked it into the diary, then you, you know I'm there. You can also send me an email off that website as well. It's martin at refurbishmentmasterclass.co.uk. Um, that's the easiest way of getting hold of me. And uh, yeah, here to help property investors and uh, yeah, stop property investors losing as much money as, yeah. as I unfortunately do see a lot of them. Yeah, a lot of them come to me a little bit too late, really. Come to me early. If you get stuck, come to me early because uh, there's more chance of me being a guide you through it or help you, help you out of the hole. No, definitely. Um, anyone that's listening today, Martin's a really good guy. I've worked with him myself and I've taken a lot away from it and applied it to my projects and uh, I've definitely saved um, some money, 100%. So um, you can't go wrong. They definitely point you in the right direction. Um, guys, thanks again for tuning in to the podcast hope you got some value from it if you have any questions about today's episode then feel free to reach me on uh, joel.white at ramseyandwhite.com um next week we've got a uh, hmo lender and a commercial lender coming on board so if you have any questions about hmo lending or commercial lending then feel free to drop me an email and i'll get, make sure the questions get answered on the podcast again thanks for your time martin thank you and have a good evening brilliant thanks so much joel good to see you cheers thank you